You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Welcome all to this week's episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs, a professor of English at Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. Not McPherson, McPherson. Um, sorry, in the in the department yesterday we were arguing about what different places are pronounced as guys. So this is... Oh, have I been pronouncing that wrong? I have. Well, uh, you know, the, it ended up in an argument over uh, what you call that long string of mountains that goes from New England down into the south. The oh, heavens. Oh, that's a fight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on where you live. It turns right. Out. And, and you know, likewise, that uh, large Kentucky city on the Ohio River. Oh, yeah. Oh, you see, you ruined the joke, Nathan. You're supposed to say, how do you pronounce the capital of Kentucky? Is it Louisville or Louisville? Uh-huh. Frankfurt. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The two jokers are, if you are familiar with us, you already know them. Uh, Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in the pronounceable Franklin Springs, Georgia. Actually, you've been and... pronouncing it wrong. It's, it's actually Franklin Springs. <laughs> oh, well. Daggummit. Um, Walk this Farmer. way. <laughs> also, Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in the still awesomely named, and I hope I'm not screwing it up, St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I think it's Bonifacious. Yeah, not Bonifacius. Bonaf- yeah, Bonifacius. Bonifacius. Bonifacio. Or something. <laughs> yes. uh, we're not Italian. Well, with that out of the way, um, how are you gents? Oh, I am back among the living, David. I uh, Pretty much when we hung up the headphones last week, I had about three hours of health in front of me. I didn't know it at the time. Um, <laughs> before I was gripped by what is still an unidentified virus, uh, the two doctors that I saw about it said that they've seen cases around North Georgia. Uh, flu-like symptoms, but it doesn't register on any flu test. Mm. So, I mean, Great. I... I have been, you know, running high fevers every night, uh, you know, immobile most of the day from pain. Uh, it it feels good to be healthy again. Is it lupus? I don't think it is. <laughs> it's never lupus. Oh. How about you, Michael? Oh, I'm pretty good. I'm ready for the semester to be over. It's, yeah. It's that time I, of know. year. My my yeah. two upper division classes have paper proposals coming in, and now I realize I'm going to have to read a bunch of books. <laughs> in addition I, to in the a, bunch of books I already have to read. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I could I could grouse about my situation too, but yeah, I'm not going to. But hey, <laughs> we are grateful to be employed. We are grateful to our institutions for uh, permitting us to. Well, you know, do do the follow the vacation that we uh, have devoted our lives to, even if we do grouse about it. Right, right. Oh, and I'll tell you, I, I <laughs> never, I've never been happier to go back to the office than I am today. 
<laughs> There's nothing about the bed of sickness to make you think about uh, all the rest of your life with a. Uh, oh man, my my office is going to be paradise. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, before we get into our topic today, uh, which is sermons, by the way, listeners, um, have we got any feedback? We do. We have a rather long email from listener Coyle Neal. Oh, did I see that? I, have I don't no, think I saw I, that. I, I don't know because I don't live inside your head, but I saw oh. it. Uh, he said, I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I'll read some of it. Uh, now that I've friended a couple of you on Facebook, uh, I thought I should go ahead and send an email that I've been meaning to send ever since I finished the Herculean task of listening through the entire corpus of Christian Humanist Podcast a few months ago. And he says, All right, Coyle. Everything but cybernetics, which he didn't finish. And I'm not sure I was uh, at the end of that episode either, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> That was a fun episode, though. You got to admit, I, I uh, it, that is one of the ones I had forgotten we did until he mentioned it. Yeah, uh, there were robots in that one. For I, I remember now that the the theme music was Kraftwerk, but that's that's all I remember. <laughs> he says, uh, first, thanks so much for the hard work and time you put into the podcast. You always have interesting things to say, which are conveyed in a way that builds up the faith intellectually. In general, you make the Internet a better place to be, although he says we're not as good as cats that look like Hitler or Crack.com. Well. But who is, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I... <laughs> says, do, you bl- do, you bl- do you blame the Stones for not being the Beatles? I mean, really, you know, I... He says, congratulations that we're all employed. And then he gives a rather long um, selection of future podcast topics. Constantine, apostasy, German idealism, Mm. uh, Rome, the monarchy, republic, empire, not the Catholic religious order. Rome, the Catholic religious uh, order, (laughs) center, not the monarchy, republic, empire. Dystopia, historical fiction, hippies, Luther, and maybe a show on other reformers. And an anti-federalist papers. He, said, he says the, the, the anti-federalists are better political thinkers and a lot more fun to read. I haven't read them at all. No, I haven't either. I, that's one of those things I've had on my list of things that I should read, but I've just never gotten around to them. And once again, the partially examined life puts us to shame because their federalist papers episode came out recently, and they actually deal with one of the anti-federalists. Brutus. Well... Also, that episode's like eleven hours long. Oh, is it really? See, no, I haven't seen. Well, it's, it's I, I, two hours, but that's such a long podcast. I, yeah, yeah, I have. I haven't listened to any podcasts this week either. So, yeah, I got that to look forward to. Yeah, listeners, you can listen to our Federalist Paper triptych and still have something left in your day for like <laughs> eating. <laughs> There you go. Anyway, Coyle uh, thanks us again and says there's only a few podcasts I really bother to listen to. Us, Christ the Center, and the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. But of those, you guys cover the broadest range of topics and so get the bulk of my attention. There you go. Additionally, the general length of your podcast is usually almost exactly the same as my commute to the small Christian college where I adjunct. So a double win on your part. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) That's a long long commute. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. we're, We're... We're probably also the only podcast he listens to that's ever made any reference to the topics of the other two podcasts he listens to. True enough. <laughs> you don't you don't think we're frequently mentioned on the HP Lovecraft podcast? Probably not. Anyway, thanks for uh, writing uh, in, oh, Coyle. Only as evidence that there is no benevolent power in the universe. <laughs> 
I can't pronounce the name of that tentacle creature. Or, or else, uh, Cthulhu. Yeah, or Cthulhu. Or something like that. <laughs> Sorry, you, you can thank him now, Michael. We've just been interrupting you. Thank you, Coyle. <laughs> and uh, thanks for listening to the entire, uh, the entire catalog. I'm, I'm not sure the three of us have done that. No, there you go. <laughs> Well, no, and, and now that puts that in context, context, pardon me, because I've been seeing Coil appear on my Facebook feed, and I keep mm-hmm. thinking, okay, you know, uh, I, I realize that I'm a fairly promiscuous Facebook personality, but I really don't remember who this person is. I. Oh, now you know. Yeah, when your, when your Facebook promiscuity reaches that level, you start to worry. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, some people, you know, when they reach that level, you know, start deleting people. I don't. I just keep adding. Why not? I, I just delete people <laughs> from high school. I don't delete listeners. Mm. Yes. Yes, listeners. We won't delete you. And see, I don't, I, I don't delete anybody, but I have blocked a couple people with plans to unblock them. Uh, actually, uh, after, eight after days from today. After they've sat in a room for a while. <laughs> What now? After they've sat in a room for a while, you're going to unblock them? Yeah. Well, no, depending no. On... After certain uh, national events have come oh, and I gone. See. I yeah. see. Well, depending on how certain national events go, you might want to actually give it a week or two. Yeah, it's true. Good advice, David. Very good advice. <laughs> you think it's bad now? Wait till the three days after the election where we have to hear about the apocalypse from whichever side loses. Yeah. Oh, well, and how democracy just died. Oh. I wish it would. <laughs> well, you're a monarchist anyway. <clears throat> yeah, and a little background, listeners. I, I in my uh, fevered grumpiness, I went off on a quasi-populist rant on Michael in a uh, private Facebook conversation this week. So they're they're both giving me a little bit of grief about that before we started recording. <laughs> we, we know we know it was the illness talking. <laughs> Uh, that's usually my excuse for Mason. It's just a different illness this time. Uh, well, he is a mad dog. Um, all right, we probably better get around to the sermon, otherwise, you know, we're just gonna, you know, you know what this is. This is like the this is like the greeting time during the service. Yeah, there you go. That that just won't stop. My uh, my old pastor used to my old pastor used to call that the big howdy. That's, that's a great awesome. name for it. All right. Well, we gotta we gotta end the big howdy and get to the sermon. Nathan, you are our uh, well, our resident preacher. So uh, I'll I'll start with you. Um, and let's just define our terms. What's what is preaching, and, and does it necessarily mean that you have to use that genre of oratory that we get that we call the sermon or the homily? Well, uh, let me talk about uh, a few instances of what generally gets called the sermon. Uh, first of all, the the Greek word that usually gets translated as to preach is kerousain, uh, which if you've done anything with Bardian and post-Bardian theology, you're familiar with the term kerygma. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it is the spoken word, it is the spoken message, it is the momentary um event, really, of uh, proclaiming the good news. So, I mean, it is, in some senses, a word that has been taken on by Christian theology and loaded up with freight. Uh, You know, in its New Testament roots, you know, it it wouldn't have been a word that was, you know, entirely novel, entirely unfamiliar. 
Uh, it was simply a proclamation of something that had happened. Uh, so, for instance, you know, when people traveled from village to village and gave people news in a very straightforward sense, uh, that would have been Kerygma. Uh, now, as far as, you know, some of the events that get called preaching, you know, the New Testament, you know, refers to them with different verbs, sometimes with that Kerusane uh, verb, sometimes as to teach, following the tradition of Torah, which, of course, in Hebrew means teaching. Uh, sometimes simply it says he spoke uh, legain. Uh, so in other words, I mean, what we've got is a very broad tradition of oratory, of speaking, of speech. Uh, now, as far as the literary sermon, you know, it is something that has taken different forms over the years. You know, there are certain, I, I would call them pop, pop theologians. Uh, they would probably not like the fact that I called them that. Uh, who try to sort of reify a sort of pure form of Christian speech and say that it only happens in the New Testament and any developments after that are basically, uh, and I'm going to identify the pop theologian I'm talking about here for those who are familiar with him, they would identify them as pagan developments. Uh, I I tend to take more of a historicist view of them that, you know, what was going on when the prophets proclaimed their oracles – took certain forms based on their moment. What Peter spoke in Jerusalem in Acts 2 took on a certain form because of his historical moment. What Paul did in Acts 17 in Athens, again, historical moment. You know, so in other words, I would say that, you know, as with a lot of genres, the sermon is something that at its root is the proclamation of an act of God, uh, but it is something whose form takes on changes over the course of history. Does that make any sense? Okay. So so you don't have a problem calling like Matthew five to seven a sermon. Yeah, I mean Matthew five, you know, refers to what Jesus is doing there as teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh again, you know, echoing that strong Moses tradition, you know, Torah. Uh but I would say that you could classify that as a sermon. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because that, that, that's something I've heard argued about, and I heard people call it, no, call it the discourse on the mount, because it's not technically a sermon. I'm like, oh, what sure, is technically sure. those, a sermon? Those are the same people who refer to the Second Testament, which ah. you know, just makes me, yeah, want to go to the bathroom. But, <laughs> <laughs> All right. but that's just me. All right. Um, well, maybe let's... let's uh, Shift from that into um, well, it, it, what at least it was when it seems to me that sermons start to take a form that 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 I can uh, connect to. But maybe it's because I've read more fathers, um, and a number of fathers had reputations as preachers in their own day. Um, well, I mean Augustine, for example, you know he he visited Ambrose's church just because he wanted to hear the rhetoric. Um. But one of the most famous patristic preachers was John Chrysostom, which the Chrysostom isn't his last name. It's a nickname. It means golden-tongued. Um, so we can kind of get a sense of how people heard him. Um, Michael, I sent you uh, a link to uh, one of his sermons on John three thirteen to 16, a pretty familiar text to, I'm sure, all of us and uh, our, our listeners. So... How does this match up to a good sermon on this particular text these days? 
it is substantially more in-depth and substantially shorter, which is kind of crazy and kind of an indictment of modern <laughs> preachers. I was expecting, I mean, we're going to get to other sermons in a, in a little while, but I was expecting one of the 30-page sermons from the 17th mm-hmm. century. And, you know, I read it online, so I don't know exactly how many pages it was, but it wasn't more than four. I mean, it's quite short, and yet he does not waste a word. Every Everything he says is to the point. It is a very in-depth explication of those verses. He goes through one by one and says what Christ is doing, why he's doing it, and even, um, something else I know we'll get to in a little while, but even uh, what it has to say to us today, which of course is his day, and I guess ours as well. Um, I was very, really quite impressed with that sermon, and he, he talks about at the beginning how um, Christ's words are lowly because he's he's trying to communicate divine truth to people who are lowly, and I, I, uh, I felt like that that is pretty much a model for what Chrysostom is doing in that in that uh, in that sermon as well is is he is speaking in very plain language but it's still very freighted and heavy at the same time it's mm-hmm. it's an excellent sermon yeah I, I've enjoyed every every bit of waiting into him that that I've had opportunity to do have you read anything that Chrysostom Nathan uh, honestly, no, I haven't. Not beyond what you set before us today, David. I mean, I'll, I'll agree with Michael. I mean, you know, this is one of those sermons where, I mean, first of all, just the capacity to hear this impresses me. I mean, I, you know, his parishioners uh, had to have a not necessarily a long attention span. Like Michael said, I mean, this wouldn't run more than a few minutes. But, I mean, as far as putting together these very wavy words as he spoke them, I mean, had to, had to be at least somewhat of a feat of attention. Mm. Yeah, I, I love, um, I love his opening line. The, what I have often said, I shall now repeat and shall not cease to say. Um, that, that just seems like a good thesis for a preacher anyway. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, I guess we'll bring up uh, what goes on at the end of the sermon too, because honestly, uh, when I was kind of fishing around for a good example, um, I didn't I didn't expect the move that he makes towards the end. So, so yeah, I, I, th- I think we yeah we need to we need to come back to this. But wow. as a uh, as, as Michael hinted though. Um, we need to get into some other sermons, and really, it's it's impossible that we can just do a history of the sermon in one episode, um, even a history of the sermon in the West, even a history of the sermon in English, would be just impossible. So, um, I guess we can just dip into our stores and bring forth treasures old and new. Um, I'll let you start, Nathan, and uh, point us to a couple of good or important sermons and give us enough background on it to appreciate what they bring to our conversation. Well, I mean, uh, first of all, David, I mean, I don't want to give uh, Chris Austin short shrift here. I mean, I, what David's oh, okay. referring yeah, to yeah. It, at the end of that uh, homily on John that he sent us, and hopefully Michael will be able to link to it on the show notes, is, I mean, in some senses, I mean, he starts this sermon out on an Athanasius register and then ends it on Shane Claiborne. Uh, you know, it's... <laughs> you know, it's at the end, you know, 
you know, Jesus spared everything. So if you're not sparing your wealth for the poor, where the heck does that leave you? <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it's like, wow, that's that's quite a turn, man. That's <laughs> so you, you get the you get the system, systematic theology, not quite systematic, I suppose. But you then you also. Get oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not by any means one at the expense of the other. I mean, he gets it all in there. And, and uh, again, I, I can't stress how short this sermon is. It, it's crazy the amount of content you can Right, get and that's what I was referring to earlier. You know, I mean, if you're, you know, a little bit groggy from the incense, I mean, he'll make that turn on you and hit you in the side of the head before you realize it. Mm-hmm. So, But, I mean, how many, how many sermons have you sat through that were 45 minutes and no content? I'll, I'll decline com- comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, but, I, I, I try to find something good to say about any sermon I sit in, but sometimes it's harder than others. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, with me, like I, like I said earlier, sick, we haven't really had time to uh, stake our territory on this. So, uh, Michael, I'll apologize in, the, in advance if I am uh, scooping you on this. Uh, but I mean, one of my favorite sermons in English ever, uh, is actually Jonathan Edwards, uh, sermon, a divine and supernatural light. Mm -hmm. Ding, ding, ding. Son of a gun. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Do you want me to do another one then or no, no, I want you to do that one. We'll just talk about it. Okay. Fair enough. Well, we'll just bounce that one back and forth and then David can hit us with some lore beyond Edwards. I I also have no I also have Lancelot Andrews. Okay, very good. You can do that one then. Um anyway, uh Jonathan Edwards of course is a contemporary of some of those great enlightenment thinkers. Uh in fact, he exchanged letters with some of them. Uh so you know, 18th century voice, uh very very much, you know, the living extension of what we think of as the Calvinist Puritan tradition intellectually uh and just a supremely gifted writer of sermons uh you know if you read up on you know his delivery what you discover is that i mean he was basically a manuscript reader you know i mean he was not the fiery uh revival preacher thundering down on people from the pulpit but i mean he would very calmly read the text of his sermon from the pulpit and then step down and you know people would uh respond to it because the content was so good uh and it's one of those things that Again, you know, I, I try to emulate uh, as far as my own writing. I, I probably deliver differently than he does, but that's all right. Uh, but A Divine and Supernatural Light is, a, is the sermon from Jonathan Edwards that people tend not to know. Uh, in it, he argues uh, that indeed it is possible for the unbeliever to read the text of the Holy Scriptures. It's possible for the unbeliever to understand the text of the Holy Scriptures it's possible for the unbeliever to give a very intelligent, rational explication of the text of the Holy Scriptures. Remember that he's operating in the day when uh, the great Enlightenment skeptics are operative. Uh, So you've got treatises and pamphlets floating around New England and floating around Europe uh, talking about the superstition, frankly, of the New Testament uh, talking about how you know the true rational religion is one that carves away those things, 
So Edwards grants those things in the divine and supernatural light. But then he says, but in order to, to appreciate the true excellence of the scriptures, there has to be a divine illumination that occurs inwardly. Now, we've talked about this back when we dug into, I believe it was when we talked about Philip Carey's book, Michael, uh, about the fact that, you know, Edwards could be interpreted here as heralding the birth of modern evangelicalism and the turn towards the interior. I would say, though, that this is a masterful move in his moment to actually deal with uh, cats like David Hume, cats like Denny Diderot that would come along later. Uh, people who would end up being, you know, the skeptical readers of the Bible, but not lovers of the Bible. And by making that interior move, what Jonathan Edwards does is he sets aside for his parishioners a space where they can say, there is something going on with the text of the scripture. We can still affirm sola scriptura, even as we acknowledge the activity and the presence and even the intellectual acuity of these critics of religion. Uh, so it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, it is a sermon that is definitely suited to a moment. Uh, it's one that, you know, I make reference to fairly often in my own sermons, uh, simply because we live in a moment where popular, I, I would call them atheists on the cheap, like Bart Ehrman and Richard Dawkins are doing their work. You know, Edwards is still a voice that helps us to situate our own faithful Bible reading in a world where those people are still doing their thing, we're doing our thing. Again, you know, it's a word of encouragement to the believer. So, I mean, uh, Edwards's divine and supernatural light is one that I think still has legs in 2012. Cool. He's also responding to... Um a movement within the church, the the halfway covenant, where you can you can be involved in the church and get baptized, and I think even I don't know if you could take communion. I can't remember that, but you, you would you would get baptized um, even if you didn't have a conversion experience, uh -huh. as long as you assented to the doctrines. Oh, okay, I didn't and know so, about that. Go ahead. So, so one of the things he's doing in that in that sermon is trying to move people toward an emotional crisis. Um, and, and and having this this moment of conversion, um, so yeah, it, it's it's actually what he's up to in his more famous, unjustly famous, I would say, yeah, sermon centers in the hands of an angry God is is he is trying to push people toward having a crisis so that they can they can uh, mm -hmm. have the emotional component he talks about in Divine and Supernatural Light. But the problem is when you only read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he comes off like a sociopath. Oh, he really does. And, you know, that the one time that I taught American Lit Survey, I taught uh, Divine and Supernatural Light instead of Sinners, and I I still congratulate myself on it eight yeah, years I, later. Yeah, I, I do too. And I, <laughs> I, t I actually teach Divine and Supernatural Light with uh, his personal narrative, which, which covers many of the same bullet points. Mm. Cool. So he was preaching to make people doubt their salvation. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. But you know, there's there's a long history in sermons of unsettling people. <laughs> yeah. I, I had a I had a pastor once who said he hates it when people come up to him at the end of the service and say, I really enjoyed the sermon because you're not supposed to enjoy the sermon. The sermon's supposed to make you recognize how sinful you are. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, you should, you you should have questions. Um, what did you what, what do you got, Michael? Well, I was going to talk about that sermon, and then I was going to talk a little more briefly about um, a famous one from the, I think, the 17th century, um, Lancelot Andrews' Christmas sermon, uh, and it, it's the one that takes its, as its text the coming of the Magi, because mm. uh, he has, I think, 15 Christmas sermons. He, I guess he gave one every Christmas. Um, Lancelot Andrews is one of those quasi-forgotten figures of the 17th century. John Donne's a much more famous preacher from that era, but Lancelot Andrews is, uh, well, he's he's remembered mostly today, I imagine, for uh, T.S. Eliot's adaptation of some of the, the paragraphs of that sermon into The Journey of the Magi, particularly the, the line, A Cold Coming, they had of it. Yeah. Ah, okay. Um, Eliot also has a rather famous essay on Lancelot Andrews that you can uh, find online if you're interested in it. Maybe I'll link to it. But, uh, Andrews is, I'm interested in him mostly as a historical curiosity in that his sermon, if you read it, is is quite difficult to read. And the reason is, is it seems to have been, the the, the printed version we have of it seems to have been somebody's sermon notes, Hmm. which is insane because it's like a 25 to 30 page sermon that must have gone on for an hour and a half and somebody is diligently not just taking notes it's not it's not bullet points i mean i mean it's it's not the fill in the blank on the back of the uh <laughs> the the back of the bulletin it's like a court stenographer she, he or she is writing full sentences right wow. and, and but you're tipped off that it's notes because sometimes they're terribly ungrammatical Sometimes it slips into a kind of shorthand. Mm. So um, Andrews goes into even more depth than Chrysostom, obviously because he has much more time, um, but he does so less colorfully. And who knows what it was actually like. It's like trying to piece back together what Aristotle, what what Aristotle's classes would have sounded like from his lecture notes. Right. But it's a sermon worth looking at, I think, more as a historical curiosity than as than as a spiritual exercise, although I'm sure we have a Andrews fan who's going to yell at me about that, and that's fun. <laughs> it's 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 very difficult to read. I think it'd be cool just to hear from a Lancelot Andrews fan. Yeah, yeah, there must be some. <laughs> well, I have um, a couple. Um, one is uh, one is fairly short, so I'm going to. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna read bits of both. Um, these are not uh, these are not, these are not sermons that I think are going to end up in in a collection of the world's greatest. But uh, well, one is important for historical reasons. The other is important, well, just because it it explains something. Something. Um, what what do people know about Francis of Assisi? You know, uh, what most people, I imagine, if they know anything about him. Um, He's the guy that uh, statues get put in gardens because he's mm-hmm. like the monk guy with a bird on him. <laughs> All right. Um, and one of the stories about Francis is that he would go preach to the birds. Well, we have the text of uh, a very brief um, little discourse that appears, in fact, to be addressed to birds, um, attributed to Francis. And it's very, very short. Um my little sisters, the birds, 
Much bounden are ye unto God, your Creator, and always in every place ought ye to praise him, for that he hath given you liberty to fly about everywhere, and hath also given you double and triple raiment. Moreover, he preserved your seed in the ark of Noah, that your race might not perish out of the world. Still more are ye beholden to him for the element of the air, which he hath appointed for you. Beyond all this, you sow not, neither do you reap. And God feedeth you and giveth you the streams and fountains for your drink, the mountains and valleys for your refuge, and the high trees whereon to make your nests. And because you know not how to spin or sow, God clotheth you, you and your children. Wherefore, your Creator loveth you much, seeing that he hath bestowed on you so many benefits. And therefore, my little sisters, beware of the sin of ingratitude, and study always to give praises unto God. Um, I don't know if he actually delivered that to birds. I suspect <laughs> that he might. He seemed like that kind of guy. Um, I almost wonder, though, whether this was not a sermon that was meant to be overheard by those who were not birds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so passive-aggressive. Say what? That's so passive-aggressive. Well, I, you know, I, I, I read the sermon um, and, you know, not being a bird and all, um, I take it, you know, I, I hear it as a sermon to me, right? You know, it, it, as almost like an expansion of the, you know, why do you worry about what you're going to eat? Because God feeds the birds and how much more valuable are you than a bird? Um this almost just seems like an expansion of of that saying from Christ. Where, oh, sure, sure. You know, I, I, I think, well, you know, I'm bound to praise God, and he's given me liberty and given me clothes and preserved my race in the ark and, you know, all of these things. Um, but I, 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 just, I just love that idea, though, of, of Francis preaching to birds Um you know, maybe he was reading in the Psalms where it was talking about trees and mountains and all of creation praising God and thought, well, they must be praising God in response to something. <laughs> so I better encourage them. <laughs> um, so I, I love that. And this is, this is why the statue of Francis has a bird on it. And now, listener, you can, um, you can recall these words, and when you see a statue of Francis, imagine that he is preaching that to the bird on his shoulder. Um, the other sermon I wanted to tip my hat to is one that is historically important, even though we have no idea who delivered it. Um, are you guys familiar with the story of Spurgeon's conversion? No. Okay. This is from Spurgeon's autobiography. Uh, he talks for, well, for a while about his... Um, how his interest in Christianity, but he just kept visiting different churches and, you know, hearing things that were either doctrine that he could admire, but we, he wasn't really sure what he was supposed to do with it, or, um, you know, doctrines that were very practical, telling him, you know, ways to apply scripture, but again, he wasn't really sure what to do with it because he wasn't sure whether he was in or out, right? And then, uh, he tells the story of wandering into a little primitive Methodist chapel in the middle of a snowstorm. And uh, it's, uh, it says, the minister did not come in that morning. He was all snowed up, I suppose. 
At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. So a lay preacher on the fly. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He didn't pronounce the words right, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in this text. And then uh, the preacher said, I mean, there are bits of the sermon here. Uh, The preacher says, dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just says, look, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool. Yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. You know, and he just kind of goes on in that vein. And then he he looks at Spurgeon and says, Young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> and Spurgeon says that he was not used to uh People making remarks on remarks on his personal appearance from the pulpit, but he 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 stayed and listened. <laughs> and then the, the the minister says, "Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live." And then Spurgeon says, "I saw the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I didn't take notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away." So Spurgeon's a name that's remembered, um, you know, celebrated in uh, a number of corners of, of Protestant evangelicalism, um, known for being a great preacher in his day, still celebrated for that. Um, but he was converted by someone whose name we will never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, preaching on the fly in a snowstorm. I've got a better Spurgeon story. Oh yeah, I, I'm just going to read it. This because I couldn't possibly tell it in better language. Uh, this is from the website Ship of Fools. Do you guys know that website? I believe I've seen it one, once or twice. Yeah, it's an Anglican comedy website. This is from their section called Loose Cannons with one in. <laughs> so it's it's stories of funny, you know, prelates and things like that. Um, Spurgeon was against a lot of things. Uh, they called him the the last of the great Puritans. Mm. So uh, the website says, The Pope was on the top of the list with the Arminians a close second. Then there were such iniquitous pursuits as dancing and theater. He was as tolerant of coarse language as the next person, but the next person was the founder of Smutbusters. Spurgeon wouldn't allow organ music or choirs in his church. He would get apoplectic about Sunday trading. So D.F. Pentecost assumed he was on safe ground. Reverend Pentecost visited from the United States in 1874 and came to the tab. It was decided that both of them would preach in Sunday service. Pentecost kicking off, Spurgeon responding on the second half. Pentecost told the thousand-strong congregation about the dangers of tobacco. He shared his own struggle with the noxious weed from which God had graciously and wondrously delivered him. He warned his listeners that there was no smoke without hellfire and urged them to sin no more and commit their lungs to Jesus. It went down a storm with the crowd. Not quite so well with Spurgeon, though, who was unexpectedly the heaviest smoker this side of the Marlboro Man. <laughs> he, could have ca- he could have catched up, and 
picked up on some other point of Pentecost inspirational 40-minuter, but that wasn't Spurgeon's gift. He mounted the pulpit and explained that his well-intentioned brother was sadly misled on the subject of tobacco. Smoking was no sin. In fact, he concluded, I fully intend this very night to smoke a cigar to the glory of God. Pentecost wasn't thrilled by this revelation. The press, however, were. They paid slightly closer attention to Baptist sermons in those days. Reports fired off. Soon the papers were ablaze with impassioned debate on the theology of smoke. Spurgeon's unorthodox technique for glorifying his maker reached such notoriety that the op opportunist cigar makers started putting his face on their packets. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. That, that is awesome. Uh, yeah. Wow. Cool. Yeah, I, I, there there are lots of funny Stur Spurgeon stories from what I've heard. I almost said Sturgeon, but that's not the same thing. Yeah, that's another species, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there are fewer funny Sturgeon stories. Oh, I don't know. I don't know any of those. But anyway, I, I I've heard lots of funny Spurgeon stories, but that that could almost be an episode in its own right. Um. Well, I guess. We, we we better we better shift. Um, now I took a semester of homiletics um, when I was an undergrad. Did you take any homiletics, Michael? No, I did not. Okay, okay. I mean, it, it it was it was the done thing where I went to school, especially of those who 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 thought they might have ministerial ambitions. That was one of the classes in which I figured out that that I didn't. Um. So you know. Even though I did take that one class, Nathan, I think you're really the only one here who counts as a preacher. So, um, could you pull the curtain back for us and, you know, give us a sense of what what is it like to prep a sermon every week? Well, first of all, I gotta go ahead and admit that I've also never taken homiletics. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's no something worries. that I have picked up, you know. And again, this is the whole uh, liberal arts. Uh, ongoing learning sort of thing. I, I've read a ton of books on preaching, uh, and that's how I've picked up uh, what homiletics I've got. Um, but yeah, I mean, the 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 process is different for everyone uh, from what I've talked to people. Uh, I've never talked to two people whose process is identical to the other. Um, for me, you know, I mean, the process starts really eight days before I preach the sermon. Uh, and this is because, you know, in my church, the outline for the sermon appears in the bulletin. Uh, you know, the bullet points, to the extent that I follow bullet points, which the people in the sound booth are always telling me that I need to follow my own bullet points better. Uh, <laughs> but they appear on the, you know, projector screen behind me. Uh, in, you know, I've probably preached 60 sermons at Athens Christian Church. I don't think I've looked back at the screen once to see if the bullet points are actually appearing behind me. So I take it on faith that that's actually happening. Uh, but, you know, for that reason, I try to have my outline that I'm actually going to have projected on the screen back to me to the music minister and the sound booth people seven days before I preach the sermon. Uh, so the way that I do it, and you know, again, this isn't the way that I recommend for everyone, but given my circumstances and, you know, I teach rhetoric, so I know that rhetoric is all about fitting the word to the circumstance. Uh, I usually write the outline that I then write my sermon into, if that makes any sense. Uh, you know, eight days before I try to do the organic 
exegetical and theological work to generate an outline. And then in the seven days leading up to Sunday morning, I then fill in that frame that I built. Uh, so, I mean, really, it's a, it's a convoluted process because one of the things uh, in my context that I didn't expect, really, uh, you know, it, it's not something I would have anticipated, is that the sermon is not by any means an individual endeavor. You know, it's something that involves a number of people. I have to be in communication with them all the time so that the music minister can organize the song set so that the AV people can, you know, do what they need to do so that the people who organize things can, you know, pick out scriptures to be read during the service, so on and so forth. So, I mean, it's a, it's one of those things where it's a cooperative process. I will also say that uh, it's a process of rewriting. Uh, and, you know, like I said, eight days before I preach it, I usually do the, you know, heavy lifting, exegetical work. And by the way, if you're doing the math, listeners, that means, yes, I set an alarm Saturday morning uh, while my wife and kids sleep in. I'm up working on sermon prep. Um, so I, I sort of write it then. And then Sunday morning, before I revise the, sun, the sermon that I'm going to preach that day, I revise it so that I can send it off for the next week to the people. And then usually sometime during the week, Thursday or Friday morning, or not strike that Wednesday or Thursday morning, I try to set an alarm early and rewrite it again. And then Sunday morning before I preach it, I get up and try to rewrite the whole thing into the outline one more time so that I'm actually preaching something that I just wrote. And again, I mean, you know, it is one of those things where the thoughts that I have eight days out to some extent determine what I actually preach on Sunday morning but it's gone through at least two very extreme overhauls by the time it actually goes out to the people Sunday morning. So it's one of those things where, you know, I, I, I try to do what I teach in my writing classes, namely do my thinking in the process of revision. So that's my process. You know, like I said, uh, I've heard of people who tackle things very, very differently you know, I'm not I'm not the sort of person who says, you know, this is the proper way to do it. And if you deviate from this, then you have moral deficiencies. Uh, I tend to think of it as, you know, an art form, as a genre, uh, as something where, you know, different practitioners arrive at what they speak on Sunday morning by different roads. Mm. To what degree do your lectionary posts reflect what you preached on? Do they? Uh, they do, they do. And in fact, you know, one of the things that I try to do is I try to do my exegetical and theological work on Saturday, and then I set a very early alarm on Sunday morning and write that lectionary post, and then use the work that I did on that lectionary post to inform the next sermon. Okay. So if you if you read the blog listeners, you'll know that I sometimes, obviously here when I've been sick and all that, I haven't posted very frequently, uh, but... I try to post on Monday morning some meditations on this on the sermon text for the following Sunday. And yeah, a lot of times I'll, you know some of the phrases and some of the ideas that I work out there do appear in the sermon. Okay. Interesting. I mean, do you, do you feel like you've ever preached a really good sermon or, or a really bad one? In both cases absolutely yes. Okay. I mean, I you know it, it is one of those <laughs> things where I and you know for me, I mean it's a lot like teaching. 
I mean, yeah. it's one of those things where there's no way to predict going in that this is going to be a really good lesson. Uh, but coming out of it, you know, you've had one. And likewise with the sermon, you know, I mean, for instance, I, you know, one of the best ones that I preached here recently, I mean, was just a very, very wonky sermon, uh, you know, sort of a sort of highbrow theological exposition. But it really connected with the congregation in a way that I didn't anticipate. Mm. And, you know, I came out of it thinking, wow, you know, that, that was a really great one. On the other hand, yeah, I know when I preach a lackluster one. Mm. I'm not near as keen, though, to uh, comment on those. <laughs> I mean, that under, understandable. I mean, we could, we could have a whole episode about, you know, flubbed lectures. And, oh, certainly, certainly. And we would be very sad at the end of it. So, so, <laughs> so I don't think we'll actually take that topic, listeners. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll shift from the pulpit to the pew. Um, Michael, uh, Martin Lord-Jones, who's a pretty – was a pretty famous preacher. You might have heard of him. Um, he's on record actually as against taking notes in the sermon, and this, this was really interesting to me. I just saw this in some conversation online. Uh, recently, this is a quote. He says, I often discourage the taking of notes while I'm preaching. The first and primary object of preaching is not only to give information, it is, as Edwards says, and so he's he's citing Edwards there, Nathan, uh, to produce an impression. It is the impression at the time that matters even more than what you can remember subsequently. While you're writing your notes, you may be missing something of the impact of the Spirit. And and anyway, I'd, I'd I'd never never thought about that. I always just felt guilty when I didn't take notes. Um, so, I mean, do you take notes, or do you now feel better better for not taking notes, or or what? I, I don't take notes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what he says makes a good deal of sense. That that you do have to. There, there's a sense in which you're taking notes and you're not listening as intently. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, Although I hesitate to say that because I would hate for students to stop taking notes in my class. Of course, there will be no test afterwards in, uh, in church, so it's it's easier to get away with it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I tend to agree with him. Um, you, you're better off listening more closely and paying attention to your reaction at the moment than to write it down for for posterity, which will probably never happen, right? I mean, right. How often, when you do take sermon notes, do you go back and review them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. No, that's. Re- I just think of I just think of John Updike who plotted all his novels during sermons. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Nathan? Oh, I was just going to say I think what Michael is touching on is very very important. I mean, it's the teleology of the moment, right? You know, I mean, if you are in a class in which you are trying to internalize a body of intellectual content then it makes some sense to create, you know, a written record for yourself so you can study later. For a sermon, I mean, there's less of a sense that that is what you're there to do. Mm. So it, is it more like, um, we, talk, we talked about this way, bit, way back in one of our music episodes, but, I mean, is it more like listening to a song than it is like listening to a lecture that you need to oh, be? Oh, man. That There's you need the to debate. Be on the song. Working with it. Yeah, and it depends on the sermon too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, for for example, I mean, you know, my uh, 
my hometown preacher, Steve White, I mean, who is one of the finest preachers I've ever known, you know, I, uh, to a great extent, you know, I try to model what I do after how he preaches. Uh, you know, I mean, he is a, as cerebral a preacher as I'm aware of in the sense that, I mean, I've, I, I don't have any active memory of him ever raising his voice in a sermon, much less yelling. And I've heard a lot of Steve White sermons. Now, am I uh, that reserved in my own delivery? No, I'm not. I mean, I, I do some hooting and hollering, as our listeners might imagine. Uh, and actually, you don't have to imagine, because, of course, there is a, a podcast feed for my the last year of my sermons now. Uh, I just imagine I just imagined your sermons being part of like the country bear jamboree in Disney World. <laughs> a hooting and a hollering. Oh, okay, 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 okay. I'm like, okay, where'd you get that? So somebody's back there blowing on a moonshine jug. Yeah, different kind of hooting and hollering. But uh <laughs> Um but, I mean, on the other hand, you know, I mean, there are definitely preachers who are very good preachers uh, for, you know, whose sermons I think of less as lectures and more as performances. You know, I mean, uh, they are spoken word performance art. And, you know, for them, I mean, it would be missing the point entirely to try to transcribe what they are doing in the sermon because you miss the moment. So it's one of those things, you know, I mean, I I think that, you know, and Michael, help me out on this because you're the Bardian. I've just dabbled, as with most things. You guys actually know the stuff. I just fart around. Uh, but, you know, the the idea of the the word of God coming in the spoken moment is something that I try to take seriously in sermons. But I think that there's a range of possibilities there that, you know, I mean, the the spoken word could come in something like a Steve White sermon where it rewards note-taking. Uh, it, it could also come in something like a Ben Parker sermon, you know, my, my pre- one of my preachers here in Georgia, uh, where it is more of a shouted performance sort of thing where, you know, you are supposed to hear the turn in his voice and, you know, hear the rise in excitement and, you know, you're supposed to... Uh, Although I, I think, you know, there are some people who overuse the frenzy at the end of the sermon, especially when they do it every week. Uh, you know, uh, I think it is some, something that's supposed to be experienced. And then, you know, I mean, on the other extreme, you know, I mean, I've been to black churches before where, I mean... It's basically a song. Well, yeah, yeah. And I mean, if, if you... Let me put it this way. I mean, if you took notes... From these preachers, you would be entirely missing the point. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean that. You know, because while you're taking notes, you can't shout back, mm-hmm. and that's the point. And that's you know, David, what I was saying at the beginning of the episode. I mean, I, I think that the sermon is something with enough breadth in the jo- in the genre that you know, I mean, your uh, your quote from Jones there, I think, is very very worthwhile to take note of. Uh, even if some, t- ah, yeah, I know. I didn't even realize I was going to make that pun until I heard myself make it. Uh, it's worth taking note of. I don't know that I would say, you know, follow it slavishly because there are some sermons where taking notes is just the thing to do. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of ha- having to take notes now and, and we're, we're, we're about to 
you know, actually kind of transition to this. I, I'm, I'm, I've been taking notes um, more recently, much more, much more detailed notes, uh-huh. um, because uh, I've, I've been tasked with leaving a small group that discusses the sermons, and so, you know, uh-huh. for my own reference, I have to, I have to get that down. Uh-huh. But I, I find myself. Um, really uncomfortable as I'm doing that because I realized that I, I, I had a habit while in a sermon that uh, I, I just I guess I just hadn't really thought about much, which is that I'll, I'll listen for a while and then something will be said and I'll kind of pull back into my mind and mull on it. Mm-hmm. And then after, you know, after I mulled on it for a few minutes, I'll, like, I'll become aware, okay, okay, now, now we've proceeded down a few verses. You know, but you know there are always these moments where I'm like, "Oh man, that that I've got to think about," and I'm not going to think about it later. It's it's like my mind wants to say, "Like you 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 need to you need to run off and mull on this now." Mm-hmm. And now that I'm you know now that I'm having to take notes, I have to shun those moments, and uh, and I I feel myself saying. Ooh, that's interesting, and and feeling the instinct to like flip to another passage of scripture that it makes me think of, but then saying no, 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 got to stay in, got to stay in. <laughs> right, right. You know. Anyway, I, I, I've 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 just become aware of how how much note taking has changed the way I, the way I listen. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, it's interesting to think about, and I I hadn't really thought about it until I realized. Well, one, I heard the quote, and then two. Uh, realized how different my my experience of listening to sermons was sure, because I'm sure. now having to do the 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 stenographer thing. Um, well, getting getting near the end, um, and this is uh, this is resurrecting uh, a topic that was that was covered before, and so partially I'm doing this because it's relevant to this particular podcast. Partially, it's also because you know if you aren't the reader that we were reading a. Uh, an email from previously and have listened through the entire Christian humanist podcast corpus. Um, <laughs> if you haven't listened to uh, the, the Philip Carey um, uh, stuff, um, was that more that was that, that, was that just one podcast or more than one? Just I'm trying one. to remember just the one. Okay. Yep. It just, it it, 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 it like, it expands in my imagination for some reason. <laughs> anyway, if you haven't, we did to- two or three without you. Right. That's right. That's right. Right, because it was during J term. Right. Well, if you if you haven't listened to to those uh, on the book Good News for Anxious Christians, um, go back and check that out. But again, it's it's worth bringing up here. Um, we're pretty accustomed these days to sermons that are, if not mostly, application and intended to be practical. Um, at least they're concluded with application. Mm-hmm. So. Could you refresh our memories on Carrie at this point, and and just to kind of sharpen it a little bit, whether or not you find that advice useful as a working preacher? Yeah, well, I mean, I I'll, I'll admit when I first read Carrie's uh, Good News for Anxious Christians, I had just come on at Athens as the interim preacher, uh, and I was anxious because I was afraid that I wasn't doing enough application, so called. Mm-hmm. And I read that, that that chapter from Carrie, and you know, he basically said, you know, application is 
pretty much worthless moralizing anyway, so don't do it. And I said, all right, I, you know, I've got, <laughs> I've got one supporter for what I'm already doing. So, I mean, it was kind of vindicating more than it was uh, a change in direction for me. And Carrie's point here is that uh, when we preach, the main thing that we are doing is that kerygma, right? You know, it is that proclamation that your sins are forgiven, death has no more sting, uh, those powers that used to govern your life do not anymore, and therefore you are free to go and be the good being uh, that is only possible because of the death and resurrection of Christ. You know, go in peace, serve the Lord, end of service, right? Uh, what Carrie says is that, you know, unfortunately, because we are in a consumeristic religious environment, uh, and we know that self-help books are the top sellers, quite frankly, in the bookstores to the extent that we've got bookstores anymore. Uh, preachers have tried to become self-help speakers. And, oh, dear heavens, have I heard some bad self-help sermons. You know, and, and you know, I know I've told this story on the podcast before, but, I mean, the apotheosis, crap, what is this word? Apex. Yeah, apex, but uh, apotheosis, the 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 grand realizing of its own divinity of the bad <laughs> application sermon uh, that I ever heard was uh, three ways to become a better grandparent, <laughs> and it took you know one half of one verse from I think Second Timothy where it says you know Timothy you remember your grandmother Eunice, and you know that was all the scriptural warrant it needed for a thirty-five minute exposition of why it's good to be a grandparent. And you know I was sitting in there I was twenty-five at the time, thinking okay I, you know I am a tr- faithful churchgoer. If I weren't, I'd be out of here. Uh, <laughs> you know, because I mean this, like, yeah. But at any rate, uh, so at any rate, you know, one of the things that I feel liberated to do because I don't have to do application is to use the sermon to really project a counter imagination. And I'm borrowing that phrase from Walter Brueggemann as I do so much of my theology. But this idea that, you know, the concrete practices that consume our day, going to work, going to the store, driving by billboards, watching TV, they create in us a certain way to imagine the world. And because of the way that those things shape our desires, because of the way those things shape our desires, uh, the sermon, the proclamation, the kerygma, has as its primary goal to reorient those desires, to remind us. Uh, so again, you know, it's not just simply a recital, uh, but it is a helping of it. It's a way to help people see uh, what the world tends to turn invisible, and to decide whether to embrace it, to celebrate it, to step around it, or to resist it. And you know, for that reason, I have. Very, very rarely, if ever, and I'm, you know, I've, I've preached, you know, gosh, about 40 sermons in the last year, so I don't want to say I haven't ever done this or that, uh, but I try as seldom as possible, I'll put it that way, to actually tell people, this is the way that you should do this. What I prefer to do is remind them, this is who you are, you are free to be good now, you're allowed to be good, so go and do so. 
Mm. It is interesting, though, because um, in, in, in that chapter, he really connects the, the notion of application or the practical to um, – to to as you said this this kind of consumeristic mindset where uh, preachers preachers feel the need to craft sermons to be a product that uh, is going to address the felt needs of you know their constituency oh sure um, sure their their market base um, but. At the same time, we were we were surprised by the end of that Chrysostom sermon precisely because of the move that he makes at the end, which to me mm-hmm. looks a darn lot like the like the practical application part of a contemporary sermon. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, is is what Chrysostom does substantially different in a way that you can see from three ways to be a better grandparent? Uh here's where I would say that it is, because it is a call to a radical departure. Okay. And I mean, I, the reason I say this is because, I mean, the self-help movement by definition asks people to do what they have been doing in a slightly more intentional way, uh, but generally in a more self-beneficial way. Mm, okay. So, so, I mean... The problem, the problem isn't application, it's banal application. Yeah, I mean that's one way to put it. I, you know, I, I, I shy away from that word myself, Michael, just because whenever I say that, I sound like a, a cultural elitist. I'm always afraid of that because I've got a populist streak that never burdens you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. I don't have that streak. Well, but more like more like the the quick tips approach to practical application. The here are three small things that you can do, and having done easy, them, the, feel way better the, about yourself. Yeah, exactly. The, it's it's the easy yeah, gospel, right? Or you know, to to plagiarize Bonhoeffer, the cheap grace, right? right. Uh, you know, it is. Uh, you know, the basic shape of your life is perfectly fine. You don't have to repent. You just have to shift gears. Okay. And for Chrysostom, I mean, what I saw at the end of that sermon, and you guys can correct me if I'm reading this wrong, uh, is a fairly radical, okay, you you have too much stuff, give it to the poor. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a fairly radical call to a group of believers. It's it's not exactly a church growth strategy. Yeah, but it's, it's in, I mean, in the sermon, and absolutely go read it, listeners. Yeah. Um, in the sermon, um, it's in response to, uh, you know, the father gave his son, the son gave his life. Yes, yes. Who are you to give nothing? Right. Um, right. And so it, it, is, it is, you know, like, like, you, like you said, uh, sort of creating an imagination. Well, I guess first, you know, in Paul's language, casting down an imagination and then right. creating um, another, you know, another world uh, another world to see and then asking you okay now live inside of that world yes thank you thank you that's a very very good way to put it in other words it's not here's how to adjust to the world that you're already living in because you're basically all right living there uh but it is the world that you have stinks here's the world that christ is calling you into live with it yeah <laughs> so you know, I'm, I mentioned that I'm leading a small group, and uh-huh. the topic that I was assigned was, was was sermon application. Sure. So, I mean, does Philip Carey think that I'm wasting my time? 
you know, or or is this actually a better place to have that conversation than in the sermon? I, I think it would be a better conversation simply because of scale uh, okay. and because of the dialogue that's possible. Uh, one of the things that I think Kerry gets at in his chapter on that, and I've, I've actually lent my copy out right now so I don't have it in front of me, uh, is that, you know, the sermon as self-help session, because it is a one-way street, is sort of a cheap self-help approach to it. Mm-hmm. I think that Carrie would say that that's precisely the place to do it because it is a dialogue. It is a small group. It's not a large mm-hmm. setting. It's something where people can actually talk back and you can actually listen to them. One of the things about the sermon as the help se- self-help session is that it's basically like watching Dr. Phil. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is someone who's going to talk at you but who is not actually going to respond to the contours of your life. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, the sermon, I mean, is just very, very ill-fitted for life advice. Now, I will talk to people, and I do talk to people. I love having conversations with people about what being faithful to Jesus means in this person's existence or that person's existence. I would not go into that in a sermon because, for one, it would be violating that confidence uh but even beyond that it would be useless to most of the other people sitting in there in the sanctuary Mm -hmm. so i think that's a very good context for doing that sort of thing okay i feel better now (laughs) (laughs) i mean not 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 that i would have to disband the place if i thought philip Carey disapproved but you know it's it's one of those things that you know we know you know Book of James and elsewhere, you're supposed to do the word at some point. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And so there needs to be some venue in which, I mean, I mean that that does need be that does need to be the topic. I mean, you don't just, you know, if it it doesn't just consist of the, well, uh, the 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 top of the mountain visionary experience. You know, I'm, I'm I'm I feel like I'm tapping into. I uh, was at book five of the Fairy Queen, right? Or, right. Um, it, it's it's not just you know that that kind of experience of charisma um, that's that's in a sermon, but at some point you have to say, okay, you know, having walked down off the mountain, having seen the heavenly Jerusalem, and now having to walk around in Rome, what what do I do? How do right, I live like? Right. And I want to emphasize, do, David, that I mean, I'm not against exhortation. Right. As a moment yep. in a sermon, what I am against is the self-help approach to it. Right, right. So just just to head off those angry emails, yeah, we we do we do think that the gospel should eventually put put its shoes on and do something. Right, right. <laughs> um, any, anything you want to add to that, Michael, or or do we want to just kind of turn turn to the end now? Yeah, I was I was just going to say if if if. You going to a church and the sermons aren't at least occasionally calling you to change, you might want to reconsider where you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Well, um, I guess uh, the, the shifting into our, our final movement, um, what do we want our listeners to take away from this conversation? I mean, do we have advice for preachers or advice for listeners or – any other preachers, past or present, that you guys want to recommend? You go first, Michael. Uh, some advice for preachers from Frederick Bigner. He says, 
Many ministers include in their sermons a joke or two, which may or may not be relevant to what the sermons are about, but in any case are supposed to warm up the congregation and demonstrate that preachers are just plain folks like everybody else. There are two dangers in this. One is that if the joke is a good one, chances are it will be the only part of the sermon that anybody remembers on Monday morning. The other is that when preachers tell jokes, it is often an unconscious way of telling both their congregations and themselves that the gospel is all very well, but in the last analysis not to be taken too seriously. Ouch. I'd also like to uh, recommend uh, Carl Bart his sermons. Um, some of them are collected in the Word of God and the Word of Man. They're very good. They will... Uh, they will call you to something higher, that is for sure. They will not allow mm. you to stay in any kind of comfort zone. Um, yeah, so th that is my advice and my recommendation. What about you, Nathan? Well, I would say that, you know, and, and this moment might have already passed, so I, I might be giving advice to the year 2002 here. <laughs> but okay. one, of the, one of the things that I have been confronting and trying to be the voice in opposition to this is the phenomenon of the abandonment of the sermon as a genre, mm, uh, yep. especially among self-proclaimed emergent types. What I would say in response to them is that the sermon is really a moment where theology happens. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean that, you know, the books and the essays and the things that we think of in modern terms as theological discourse they have their place but the sermon is the place where the I would hope trained speaker at the front uh, actually does the rhetorical task of bringing the scripture into the conversation with this moment and frankly I'd say that's something that you just can't get from a big conference speaker from a podcast from you know, something that you download, it is something that happens in the moment. And I think that that focus on the moment and that focus on the spoken word here and now is something that is not to be missed out. So um, that's all I'm going to say right now. Uh, listeners, I just want to go ahead and publicly thank Michael for the work he's going to have to do editing out my <laughs> hacking cough here. Uh, and I apologize for that, Michael. Well, we think we're thankful that you that you stuck it out this long, Nathan. This has been this has been a grueling episode for uh, Gilmore, dear listeners. But he is a trooper. Um, I, I want to leave some advice. Um, I'm going to draw it from. Uh, I'm going to go back to Francis, and I'm going to go back to the unnamed preacher for for Spurgeon, and address something that I see as a danger in um, you know a, a, a group that I identify pretty strongly with. Um, one of our much earlier podcasts, we talked about emergent versus the new Calvinists, the young and restless and reformed. And, you know, I tend to be, you know, I don't know how much longer I can say that I'm young, but um, I'm fairly contented, but I am reformed. And a lot of those guys that the young, restless, reformed like, I, I like a lot of those same writers and preachers and so forth. But there is a danger there um, in that it's very easy these days in the internet to become a connoisseur of good preachers who aren't your pastor and to be discontented or restless in your own congregation because your pastor isn't, isn't like the preachers that you, that you admire um, over the distance of the internet. Um, 
I, I, I see this. I see this as a danger for, uh, well, for 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 people who 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 are like me, and you know, maybe you guys see similar dangers and and other kind of you know corners of evangelicalism. Um, but I want to point to Francis, and I want to point to uh, the unnamed preacher, um, who Spurgeon was converted by, um, to to address this. Um, you don't. It, the, the preacher doesn't have to be um, an incredibly well-educated and incredibly well-trained uh, preacher. It doesn't have to be a phenomenal orator. Um, the the word when spoken, you know, it's the divine supernatural light that ignites that ignites that word in you. Um, you know, don't be don't be the dead heart sitting there listening to the words spoken to you and not, not hearing um, because it's not being delivered in the way that you think is, is smooth. It's not making the moves that you think are most effective. Um, you know, you know, don't be the guy that wouldn't have been converted by the nameless primitive Methodist, you know, be Spurgeon in that moment. You know, also, um, don't assume that a sermon isn't for you. I know that this is something that I struggled with, especially when I was uh, in Bible college and I was in theology classes and so forth. When it was a text I was familiar with or a topic I was familiar with, I would tune out um, because I, I said, I already know this stuff. Um, don't Don't assume that a sermon isn't for you. Um, you're allowed to listen to other people's sermons as aimed at you. Um, you're allowed to, you know, in, in, any, any word that you take to heart, that word was for you. You know, ask not for whom the sermon was preached. If you heard it preached, it was preached for you. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I sometimes see, I sometimes see discontent. And so, um, you know, be, be humble in the pew and be receptive and uh, you know, don't he uh, don't 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 get lost by who's behind the pulpit and forget who's behind the one in the pulpit. So, yeah, that's my advice. Wheel. What are we talking about next week, gentlemen? Next week we've got on tap Flannery O'Connor. We're going to be talking about a number of her short stories, and we're going to talk about uh, the vision that she presents. Uh, for modern Christians. Cool. Looking forward to it. Well, listeners, um, if you have any uh, any comments, uh, any any preachers that we've left out, because you know we've well, there are far more preachers than we've been able to to name or address. Any recommendations you want to make, or uh, corrections, or anything of that nature, um, you can comment on the show notes when they post on our blog at christianhumanist.org. You can send us email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or post on our Facebook wall. Um, while you're visiting us on Facebook, you can like us or friend us or those various other ways that social media permit you know, folks to approve of things in public ways. Um, we crave approval. Also craved are uh, you know, ratings on iTunes U. So, uh, you know, if, if you come at, it, at us from that route, you know, and you enjoyed what, uh, what we're doing, um, well, 
say so and maybe more people can discover us. In the meanwhile, this is David Grubbs speaking on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, wishing you the grandest of weeks and leaving you with great advice from, well, the guy who nailed theses onto a door yesterday, Martin Luther. So let your sin be strong and to let your faith be stronger. Thank you.